Thought Leadership from PwC. We are basing massive amounts of our future growth, our opportunity, our company's survival based on truths that may no longer be accurate. They may be accurate, or they may be shifting, or they may be outdated. And if they're outdated, then you've got to do something about it. Coming to you with the latest economic and geopolitical updates, this is PwC's Accounting Podcast. I'm Heather Horn, and thanks so much for joining us today. We thought it was the perfect time to take stock of the latest macroeconomic and geopolitical events and to consider the effects they may be having on your company. Back on the podcast today, I'm happy to welcome Craig Stromberg, specialist from PwC Intelligence. He'll share updates on the economy and global outlook that you will not want to miss. With that, let's go to my conversation with Craig. Craig, welcome to the podcast. So nice to have you on and so excited for our month all about what's going on in the world. And as part of this series, I've always liked to kick off by asking the guests why the particular topic, but maybe even before we ask that question, if you want to give a quick overview for our listeners of what they're going to hear this month, and then we'll say why we're starting. Yeah, absolutely. And as usual, thank you again for having us back. This is like the highlight of whatever month we happen to be on. (laughs) So when we talked about what are the things that we are hearing consistently across sectors from companies, big and small, from an issues point of view, it's the four things that we're going to sort of talk about in this series, right? There's sort of the outside of the puzzle box, which is what we are talking about today, which is global forces. How do they work? How are companies thinking about them? How should they potentially be thinking about them differently and then it's three individual forces, you know, and issues. One is supply chain. One is sort of the current state of India, you know, as a global player and a market opportunity. And the third is how does the economy look when it is incredibly hard for anybody who's trying to come up with an answer as to how the economy looks to discern that. And I think one of the things, at least for today's conversation, that will probably be clear to anybody that listens to all four of these is there going to be a lot of corollaries between this one and those. I think all of those issues will probably come up at some point in today's conversation. Okay, but- perfect. So this is like an overview. Although I will say that last topic of how does the economy look, I think, and um, perhaps where is this going, that may be the one of most interest to everyone. Because if you have the crystal ball that tells them that, you're probably the most popular person uh, in the U.S. right now. So I'm not going to be on that podcast, so I'm not going to make a statement. I don't want to set my colleagues up for anything. But I'm sure they'll at least have some interesting comments. They will. <laughs> All right. So, Craig, with that sort of as an overview and background then, um, in terms of where we're starting, it sounds like we're starting with the overview of what's going on in the world. And I know one of the topics we're going to talk about is the is disequilibrium, which I feel like is something we talked about a lot when we first started meeting, and then perhaps something we haven't talked about as much. So what can you share in terms of what the definition is and what do we mean when we say that? 
So I'm glad we're starting with this question because we've talked to enough companies about this over the last couple of years that they're actually now starting in the most recent conversations to say, are we still in disequilibrium? So it's, it's a absolutely valid, you know, market question. So where disequilibrium really started was if you think back before COVID, the world's geopolitical structure and our understanding of it was variable, but it, it was weak, but not completely unpredictable. The, Macroeconomy was a little more predictable, right? There were spikes of uncertainty like the global financial crisis. But by and large, if you were a corporate officer or a CFO and you wanted to understand what the next quarter would bring, you could probably have reasonability that you could make some solid assumptions. COVID did away with those assumptions, both in terms of macroeconomics and geopolitics, and it threw everything up in the air. And that is disequilibrium. It is where the world's macroeconomic and geopolitical systems are out of whack. I think part of what Chris and Zane are going to talk about on the macroeconomic episode is that there is some equilibrium returning, not complete equilibrium, in the economy. But geopolitically, disequilibrium probably still exists. I think the question that comes on after yours that we're getting from companies is what follows disequilibrium mm-hmm. geopolitically. Because at some point, the disequilibrium geopolitically becomes semi-permanent. It doesn't become equilibrium, but it becomes sort of what companies have to expect. And the more and more companies that I talk to, they are coming to the understanding that their assumptions about the future operating environment globally aren't going to hold. They don't know what they should necessarily be doing but they understand that it's probably going to continue to be very uncertain. And so whether it you call it a rewiring world mm-hmm. or a shifting world, it's going to continue to be very complex for companies to understand. So it's interesting you mentioned COVID. And I was actually talking to a colleague yesterday about COVID. And it's hard to believe in some ways it's been three years. On the other hand, it's can't believe it's only been three years since that all started. But one of the big things we talked about in COVID that was term no one liked, I think, was new normal. But it almost seems like what you're saying here is disequilibrium maybe is truly what is now going to be normal. Craig's nodding. So I guess sort of, at least sort of agrees. I think at least geopolitically that's yeah. true. Now, the one exception is that Part of what happened during COVID as governments responded to it, and then, you know, in COVID, as we talked about many times on podcasts, right, you had this whole supply chain, and we're going to talk about that, you know, on another podcast, series of dominoes that fell because COVID tested all of the boundaries of the supply chain, and it broke. A lot of those assumptions were never built to survive a global pandemic, and it didn't. Mm-hmm. So it sort of showed us what was and wasn't working, and we'll go into more depth on that one. But where we are, I think, is that the geopolitical sands are going to continue to shift. And I think we'll talk about why that is the case. But I don't see any normality. And what I mean by normality is when a CFO or a corporate officer looks the quarters to come, and tries to understand foreign markets and foreign investments, 
macroeconomics and geopolitics go together. And so even if the macroeconomic conditions are becoming a little more clear, mm-hmm. if geopolitics isn't clear, then one side of the coin is unbalanced. And so companies are going to have to continue to deal with this. And I think the good news is, and we should probably talk about this, I'm seeing some con- companies do some pretty interesting things that when we started talking back during the pandemic, I didn't see them doing, which is good. All right. We'll definitely have to come back to that. But maybe before we jump all the way ahead, I know we started with disequilibrium, but maybe more broadly, can you just give us sort of a quick tour around the world and say, are there other big picture factors that are impacting things or that people should be thinking about before we delve into some of this conversation? So one of the things that's happening globally is that power is shifting. And geopolitics is not a science, but I think for the purposes of this conversation, let's just say in the world, there are 100 units of geopolitical power. Okay. And those 100 units are distributed across multiple countries, some having more, some having less. For a long time, for most of our careers, our educations, Mm -hmm. our lives, the U.S. had the vast majority of those units of power. And they still have a tremendous amount, right? The U.S. market is still the number one market in terms of investment. It's still the most dynamic in terms of innovation. But the U.S.'s geopolitical power has been reducing steadily for the last 20 years. And that does not evaporate. That power transfers somewhere else. And one of the interesting places that is getting it recently is some of the countries in the Persian Gulf, which have always been very good at working sort of across the globe because of where they're positioned in between Africa, Asia, Mm -hmm. Europe, and having relations with a different, a distant Washington But some of the things that you see them doing about securing their long-term futures by both having the U.S. as a strong partner or ally, but also increasingly making really interesting connections with the Chinese, which most countries can't do those things Mm -hmm. at the same time. But some of the countries in the region can, and they are placing some pretty long bets that I think eventually we're going to see more of the power transferring there. And we're certainly seeing more of the power and more of the market concentration of power shifting towards East and Southeast Asia. All right. Well, definitely a lot to think about there and, and to follow up on, but another sort of, again, level setting question before we do that Why is it important for companies to make sure they understand these global forces, particularly let's say I'm listening and I'm not a multinational and I'm only operating, let's say in the U S or Canada or whatever country, you know, our listeners are listening from. It's a great question. So part of this comes to whether or not a company, regardless of its size, location or sector wants to be reactive or proactive. Do you as a company want to feel market and force impacts at the same time as all of your competitors? Or do you want to understand how those forces are in motion so that if you do, you could get ahead of them? And right, the the ideal, very simple metaphor here is a thunderstorm. 
right? If you know it's coming, you can take precautions. You know, you can wear different clothing. You can get out of the way. You know, you can find shelter. If you don't know it's coming, you and everybody around you is going to be rained on equally. And part of understanding global forces is that you want to understand how the weather is changing and how that's going to affect your supply chain, labor, pricing, the economy, purchasing power, because all of these things are now linked. And because of disequilibrium, they're highly uncertain. The other thing is that all these shifting global power dynamics creates new opportunities in many new markets that many companies never thought about before, right? If you think about the U.S. business community's experience with China, you have many executives that have been going back and forth from companies big and small to China for 20, 30 years. They've gotten very comfortable there. They don't know as much about Malaysia. They don't know as much about India. They don't know as much about Vietnam. It's not that they're afraid to go. They just don't know it as well. And so as power shifts, new opportunities you know, will come about. But you don't want to be the last one in line to get to those opportunities. You want to be proactive in understanding how the forces are changing. And I think one of the other really important things here, and this gets back to something we were talking about earlier, which is many of the assumptions that business leaders, regardless of their size or sector, have had in recent years or even recent decades are false now, right? These include things like global disruption will be temporary. There was a time when that was a valid assumption. That is not a valid assumption in the world we're operating in. That U.S. global power would be constant and even increase. That's not necessarily a valid assumption at the current present moment. That supply chains and just-in-time logistics are absolutely the way to go. There was a time when that was a perfectly reasonable assumption. I don't know if it's a reasonable assumption now, as we'll talk about in the other podcasts. And that geopolitics and the economy are separate things. And you can treat them as separate things. That assumption has been proven to be false. And what a lot of this gets to is short-term thinking, which is a lot of what really good executives are good at. You know, they make decisions quickly about the market. You know, and people that aren't involved with business, right, don't always understand how difficult that can be. And business is very good at that. But some of these longer-term decisions about slower-moving forces, they're harder. And they're not necessarily in the sweet spot for corporate executives that don't traditionally deal with those things. So you made a point there that the assumptions business leaders are making are no longer valid. So what then, if I'm a business leader, am I supposed to do if, okay, the way I've historically done business is no longer the way I'm supposed to be, I should be thinking about it because my sort of baseline, what I think to be true is actually moving. So one of the things to do, which is the most simple thing is to actually list out what are the assumptions under which your business operates. Like when you wake up every day, right, whether you are CFO or the COO, or the chief risk officer, whatever it may be, whatever your job in the company is, what assumptions do you make about the company, the market, the economy, geopolitics, supply chain? Nobody really thinks usually if you're a normal person, and as we've well established, I'm not a normal person. <laughs> so I think about this, but I'm strange. 
most people don't think about the reasons why they're thinking something right about their assumptions. But if you start to actually get things, things on the whiteboard, what you start to realize is we are basing massive amounts of our future growth, our opportunity, our company's survival based on truths that may no longer be accurate. They may be accurate or they may be shifting or they may be outdated. And if they're outdated, then you've got to do something about it. And so starting to examine assumptions could lead to an opportunity to increase agility. So let's say I'm listening and I persuade the executive team to go through and to list out these assumptions and to start to really examine them. What do you do then if you don't have a Craig on staff who is there to say, oh, well, that one maybe is okay to continue to rely on and that one's not because otherwise you're kind of on the lagging end. So for example, one of your examples was the thing about supply chains and just-in-time logistics. Now, hopefully anyone paying attention and even looking still at short, you know, store shelves or car inventory lots or anywhere else can see that maybe isn't the way to go. But some of these are maybe harder to get your hands around. So what do you advise companies if, if they don't really have the knowledge to think about them? So I think there's a couple of things you can do. I mean, right. You can talk to other companies, whether that's through an ISAC chambers of commerce you can talk to the government, you know, whether that's the Canadian government, the American government, the Israeli government, whatever it is. I mean, they will increasingly have these conversations, and some of those are increasingly proactive. But there are two examples recently that I think are kind of instructive. One was a Japanese company I talked to, and the other one was a German one. These are not companies that have an in-house scenario or intelligence shop. But both of them are sufficiently worried about macroeconomic mm-hmm. supply chain and geopolitical shifts that what started as just a regularly scheduled meeting between corporate officers to talk about these things became, in effect, a week-long scenario exercise where they just started to think about how could this play out well and poorly for us. And the outcome of both of those changed their strategies. So these were not practitioners, right? Mm-hmm. These are not folks that did war games or tabletops for a living, but they knew their business and knowing your business is the key input because understanding global forces is great, but you have to get it down into the context of your mm. company, mm-hmm. your business, your sector. If you don't contextualize it, it's interesting, but it doesn't help you as much. Anybody in the company that has any authority or knowledge should be able to do that for you. The missing component that you're talking about, you can get that from other places. What I would say to companies is, I don't know that in that case, the good is the enemy of the perfect. I think it is okay if you have good inputs. And there's a lot of good inputs that sectors, think tanks, governments, consulting organizations are putting out about these risks, they can be your inputs. And then you need to contextualize what does this mean in multiple different futures for the firm. Well, and I guess even that point, because I made a very broad statement of, of course, just in time doesn't work anymore. Look at 
you know, store shelves. But your point as well, it really, you do have to consider your own business, your sector, otherwise, because maybe in some cases, it, it could still be working, or there's a modified version or otherwise, you can't make those types of blanket statements, you have to really understand what you're doing as a company. You do. And I think part of the challenge, right, for any corporate leader is some of those assumptions about all of this, you didn't make them, your predecessor made them. Or your predecessor's predecessor's mm-hmm. predecessor made them 20 or 30 years ago, and they got built into the system. And nobody told you when you got to be in charge that, by the way, these are the assumptions we're operating under. So it's very difficult sometimes, even in a very introspective culture, corporately, to find these. But you can find them. So it's not a matter of of malice, you know, of willful ignorance. Sometimes it just takes some real introspection because those in charge aren't the ones that made the assumptions. They're just operating under them. Well, and so then to that point, let's assume you do take this whiteboard exercise or whatever exercise makes sense for you as a company. And the scores of things you may think about are assumptions. And Again, it's going to depend on the company and the sector and otherwise, which ones are most important. But big picture, if you were helping kickstart this conversation, what are some of the ones that you would see as top of mind right now that companies should really be focused on examining? In terms of assumptions? Yes. Or in terms of sort of forces that could be impacting their company. So, you know, there are scores of them, right? And this does vary, again, by company, by sector, by country, by size, you name it. And I think part of the reason that I think calling them forces is appropriate, and ideally even tectonic forces, is that they're incredibly large and slow-moving. And you sort of look at them today, and you're like, well, that hasn't moved since yesterday. Mm -hmm. But you stop looking at it for a while, and all of a sudden, the iceberg is not on the horizon, it's right next to the ship. Mm-hmm. Even though it moved very slowly, they do move, but when they move, they move with enormous forces. So the three that we really talk about the most based on what clients are interested in are geopolitical disruption, polarization, and this balance between trust and distrust. And geopolitical disruption Some of this has to do with a lack of trust, a lack of trust between countries. And as I said, you know, at the top, this was bad before COVID. Mm -hmm. It's bad now. Even companies that, if you just read the media, think get along well, where they're not even just partners, they're allies. There are higher levels of distrust between those countries than there has been in the past. Some of this is due to U.S.-China tension, which affects everybody, not just those countries. And a lot of this has to do with that transfer of power I talked about, where some of the power that the U.S. has surrendered or lost or it's ebbed away has been gained by what used to be called the middle powers. You know, these are the Brazils, the South Africas, the Indias, the Turkeys, the Egypts, the Indonesias of the world, right? Who are also thinking very actively about this in the context of global forces and how can they benefit? And one of the other ones that's really active here that we've mentioned before is protectionism, 
which is in a world of geopolitical tension, countries are going to their companies and saying, whether you like it or not, we are going to ring fence what you produce because we don't want anybody else to have it. It's too important to national priority. It's too important to national security. So you can sell it here and maybe you can sell it to these other guys, but you can't sell it to everybody. And that is happening with increasing frequency. It's happening here. It's happening all over the world. Protectionism is on the rise. It's impacting free trade and it's driven by geopolitics. A lot of geopolitics is driven by the second force, which is polarization. So, sorry, before we go on to polarization, question for you on geopolitics. And specifically, we're recording this last week, August, last week. There was a lot of publicity around the BRICS meeting, the welcoming of new members and otherwise. So, for a lot of people who maybe historically haven't paid a lot of attention to that, really, what is that I'll use the word loosely, organization, and what does the most recent meeting mean? Or is that more of a press thing and that it doesn't necessarily mean a lot? No, it's a great question. No, it, it, I think it meant a lot, especially this last one. So for those unfamiliar with this, the BRICS is an informal multi-party agreement between Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, Right. I, I think you could very easily and justifiably call China a great power, mm-hmm. you know, a superpower. But the others are probably one notch down in terms of their economic, their geopolitical, their diplomatic weight. What all of them have in common is that they don't like the rules that they inherited. They don't like the rules that the U.S. and Europe set up. And U.S. and Europe didn't set those rules up with malice, mm-hmm. right? They set them up to create global opportunity and order. Yeah, know? stability, right? And stability. Yeah. But as the decades have gone by, the view from these countries in particular and others has changed on that. And even though there really wasn't malice, there was goodness in the creation of those policies, their point is we didn't have a say in how that stuff got set up. And as the market changes and the economy changes in the future, we want more of a say. And we're going to say it together so our weight means more. Now, BRICS is not an alliance. It is a partnership. They don't have a common currency. They don't have a common macroeconomic strategy. But it is real. And look, anytime you've got on a regular basis, as you did in South Africa last week, the prime minister of India and China sitting down together, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, frankly, anytime the leadership of China leaves China is a big deal. And the fact that they left China and went to this meeting and spent so much time tells you how invested they are in this. Now, what they did at this, which I don't know that a lot of people expected, was they invited new members for the first time, right? They invited Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE. Now, what's interesting about those six is five of them are in the region that I mentioned before. Well, that's what actually made (laughs) me think about it, yes. There's a whole other historical podcast which has no commercial value, which is why are things like the Middle East called the Middle East and why they probably shouldn't be. Yeah. But but like the Middle East, like the greater Middle East encompasses Ethiopia, right? If you ask people on the ground what it is, Ethiopia is part of it. Mm -hmm. You know, Egypt's part of it. And so from their point of view... The BRICS members have recognized that power is shifting to that area 
dynamic things are happening in that area, they want to be very closely tied to it. I don't think this is like the first step in the downfall of the dollar. Right? I don't think this is necessarily going to unseat the G7. But if you flash forward 10 or 15 years, this greater BRICS could be something more than it is. And I think this is one of those global forces that companies probably need to be mindful of. It's not a constant every day, every quarter thing, but you probably need to be mindful of what's happening because that could change opportunity and risk in terms of different markets. All right. Well, definitely that sounds like a whole podcast on its own and I don't want to spend too much time, but definitely very interesting and sounds like something to focus on. So then polarization, which in some ways I think also relates to what, as you just said, geopolitical disruption, because I feel like we're becoming more polarized, but what can you share? I think that's right. Right. And this is happening all over the world. You know, it's, it's people hear polarization. They immediately think, as an American about the United States. Mm -hmm. It's not just that. It's happening everywhere. And a lot of this is because a lot of people all over the world who were affected by the pandemic, many of them are very frustrated with what happened during the pandemic. They were frustrated with how their governments responded. They were frustrated with what they could and couldn't do. They were frustrated how they've been set back economically. So there's a massive amount of polarization that is taking place. A lot of this is driven by technology and the ability to communicate together in communities of interests. And a lot of it is connected to a force that I'm sure Chris and Zane will talk about, which is economic inequality, which is very severe. It is impacting global populations and it is creating real resentment and anger, right? Even as we are recording this podcast, you know, here in Manhattan, mm -hmm you know, with a lot of white collar workers around us. If you ask a lot of the, those younger workers, they're frustrated. Mm -hmm. They're frustrated with their buying power, what they can and cannot do. They're frustrated by levels of debt. And whether or not that's the conversation to have, the anger is real. And that's happening all over the world. And part of the impact for businesses here is that polarization is making ESG management really complicated. Because polarization comes down to a local level. It comes down to a state and municipal level. And if you look at what's happening with ESG, states are beginning to say to multinational U.S. companies, mm -hmm. you have policies under the ESG banner that we don't like. So we're going to have a conversation about whether or not that should take place in our state. And that is all driven by polarization. U.S.-China policy in Washington is driven by polarization. So this is something that companies need to be aware of because as they think about ESG issues and growth on a local level, they have to be aware of this. And the last one is, is well, wait, sorry, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> so let me dwell, I'll use that word, on the ESG sustainability point for a moment because I think there's two contexts here. One is we've spent a lot of time on the podcast talking about sustainability and in particular CSRD, which the rules coming out of the EU, but as well, I think in the context of the end of this summer, very, very hot summer. So, you know, you've just seen a lot of unusual weather that a lot of people would attribute to climate change. And then again, though, the huge topic for polarization in terms of if you mention climate change, you're getting a lot of different reactions. And so if I'm a company 
and I'm operating in different places with maybe different views on this. And then I'm also trying to navigate with my customers. I'm trying to navigate with my employees and all of, of these forces. How are you, how do you think about this, especially in this context of polarization? So it's a great question. I think part of it is that there was a time talking about assumptions when you could have a marketing or operations or sales plan for the whole of the U S and you put a period after it and you close the folder and that was it in the polarized marketplace that we are working in right now, you probably need a far more specialized, you know, plan to understand two things. One is how is your brand plans, product, strategy, operations, statements, whatever it is, going to be received in multiple markets that you care about in multiple regions? Two is, how is that going to change over time? Because as demographics shift, as political attitudes shift, and there's migration within the country, and there's migration from outside the country into mm-hmm. locales, some of those places that you've made individual plans for will change. And they could change relatively quickly, quickly being, you know, five, 10 years. Think of some of the changes that have happened, you know, in the last five or 10 years in this country, where you saw states switch from being one color mm-hmm. to another that was not anticipated. That's just one example of where you can see sudden shifts in a local market that you need to be prepared for. And so, the downside of this is it's expensive, you know, and it would be much easier to have the one size fits all strategy for sales and market and brand. But for some companies, it's just going to be harder and they're going to have to think about how does their plans, whether it fits under ESG or not, how does it have to be adaptable to different places? And that's going to require some work and some investment. Well, and I think the other sort of follow-up question I have for you is you mentioned, you know, the fact you may have states, countries saying, I don't like your policies, you you can't have them here. And clearly, one of the things that's gotten a lot of press in particular about the CSRD and the EU is the extraterritoriality of those laws and a lot of related laws that we've talked about. Are you expecting them for us to see more in general of these types, types of sort of extraterritoriality laws impacting operations? Or do you think this is sort of a more green climate sustainability and not something that's going to spread more broadly into business? So none of you can see this, but I'm slowly ending Heather at 20 to slide across the table <laughs> for asking the question. Um, yes, right. And it's, it's a great point because this is a lot of what business is concerned about. And I'll give you a couple of quick examples, right? A lot of this flows not with money or investment, but mm-hmm. with data. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lot of this is really about. So a couple of examples are from the U.S. point of view, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., which we mentioned protectionism under the increase of geopolitical uncertainty. CFIUS is at sort of the forefront of that. It's been empowered by law to do new things. CFIUS now has a global mandate. CFIUS now has the power to undo global deals that do not always directly involve a U.S. entity if U.S. technology or data is at stake. 
they tried it and they were successful. And when they tried it, I wasn't sure it was going to work. They don't like to shoot and miss. So they must have been pretty confident. And it did work. You had two countries in Asia that had made a deal independently, was a merger and an acquisition. And Cepheus went to one of them and said, there is going to be too much U.S. data that is going to be given up in this. We would like you to undo the deal. And they did. That will not be the last time that happens. And it won't just be Cepheus that does it. Mm -hmm. Cepheus, like regulators around the world. The other example I'll give is that China's data and cyber laws, which are increasingly being replicated in other markets, Mm -hmm. including places like India, what those basically say is that if there is intellectual property ideation that occurs at a U.S. entity in China, Wherever that ideation goes, it can be governed by China's laws. So if U.S. company X has an operation in China and it creates a new idea for a product that it then goes and sells in Romania, Chinese regulators could come to that company and say, everything you're doing in Romania, we want to see in terms of its data because you came up with that IP here and it's covered under our laws. Again, I don't know where all of this stops or if all of it's going to be successful. But this is a new frontier, mm-hmm. you know, where you talk about changing assumptions. Like it was what, 25, 30 years ago, where we thought data was going to be free right. and it was going to go wherever it wanted to. And now it's running into 25, 30 years later, the reality of geopolitical tension. And all of a sudden, countries are saying it's not really free. Some of it's free. But this other stuff, we don't want anybody to have that but us. Where that goes from here, it's a whole other podcast, but it's it's interesting. Well, and so I think also it's a perfect lead in to your final topic of trust and distrust, because that also is underlying a lot of this, right? That there's not trust. And so I want to tell you what to do instead. But bigger picture, when we think about trust and distrust, what are some of the factors you're thinking about? You're right. It is absolutely all related. And distrust sort of underlies a lot of this because- It's very difficult to have stable geopolitical relations when a lot of individuals don't believe in what their own governments are telling them, right? And it's it's very difficult to have effective policies when that's happening. I mean, most people around the world no longer believe their own governments and what they're saying. The U.S. and the U.K. averages around 30% of the population that believes it, you know, Japan's around 45%. Finland's at 80, you know, which is why they're happy. (laughs) Happy places, right? People believe in it. But if you look at the historic trend of how the U.S. population has looked at trust just in the government from the high right before Watergate to now, it's fallen like 78%. And a lot of that is because of polarization. But what this means, and this connects to your question about ESG, is What you're trying to figure out when you're doing localized ESG assessments is you're really trying to figure out what is the level of distrust. Mm -hmm. In this sub-sub market, what is the level of trust and or distrust in my brand, my product, what I am saying? And how do I change those who don't trust to people who do trust so I can have more of an opportunity there? And polarization drives this but it is shifting. And so 
I think companies having a mindset for how do you measure this, this balance is pretty critical. All right. So definitely already a lot to think about, but any other big picture forces you want to touch on for the audience in terms of things to be aware of? So the only other one that I'll mention quickly, and we sort of got to this a little bit with the BRICS, is we've been talking geopolitically about the rise of the global south you know, for 25 years. And we've been waiting and waiting and waiting like a train that never shows up. I think the train is coming. I don't know that it's here. I think like the BRICS countries, you have a lot of countries in Africa and South Asia, Latin South America, that are frustrated with the way the world works and who has a preponderance of power and why they don't have more of a say. And at some point, that has to be dealt with. One of the sort of things that I'm looking for, which is a high impact, low probability event, but it's not beyond the realm of possibility is, you know, seven blocks east of us is the UN. And if enough UN members get together, they can re- rework the charter. The UN charter doesn't really benefit everybody equally in their eyes, whether that's true or not, that's what a lot of them think. And so as India, which we're going to talk about this week, and other powers change the way that they impact global power and geopolitical shifts. I think the global South is going to be something that more companies need to think about. Now there's good in this in that the global South holds a lot of opportunity, but these are markets that many U S companies aren't familiar with, but they're young markets demographically. There's a lot of growth potential. There's huge natural resource opportunities but there's a lot of exploration that has to be done. And so if companies aren't thinking about the global South, they need to understand their point of view, but also the opportunities they present. Well, and I guess that final point, Craig, maybe leads to my maybe close to final question. But you know, when we talk about all these forces, I think there's often an underlying tone of negativity because on the surface, a lot of these forces are actually big picture, pretty negative. However, for individual companies, there's also the flip side of that is they all create opportunities for individual companies. So you started the very beginning of the podcast that said some companies are doing interesting things in response to all of this. So what in terms of, again, I'm listening, I'm thinking I want to see the opportunity here instead of the, the negative, what are some of the things companies can be thinking about there? So the most interesting stuff that I'm seeing is one, two, or three of the following. You know, And the most advanced, interesting companies I'm seeing are doing all three. But even doing one of these is a good idea. So one of them is having a proactive model to assess global forces. And the key here is to, as we talked about earlier, it's to contextualize these things in terms of what is important to your company, you know, your sector, your industry. And to think about this in terms of three levels. And this is sort of how we tend to do analysis, right? There's the what, there's the so what, and the now what. The what is polarization is a thing. So what is Here's how it is changing and morphing over time and impacting the market. The now what is, here's how it's impacting us. And just using this basic framework to bring some of these 50,000 foot issues down to the now what of what's happening in the company, even that is useful. 
because it connects very big tectonic issues down to along this glide path to what does this mean for us? What does this mean for our competitors? Which is ultimately what matters to business. Mm-hmm. You know, the second thing is watching global forces, you have to make this somebody's problem. Like, and I, I feel for the CFOs of the world, right? Because oftentimes like the CFO is the utility outfielder. Right. Like who's going to do this? The CFO will do it. You know, we've already put five jobs on her back. What is the difference? Mm-hmm. You know, we'll add a sixth, but this ought to be a full-time job, right? Whether it's in the C-suite or not, understanding these forces and understanding the so what and now what, like how are they changing and impacting the markets we care about and how are they impacting us as a business? That is a full-time job. You got to make that somebody's full-time job. And the third thing is, you know, one of the most successful generals of the sixties and seventies was an Israeli called Moshe Dayan. Almost nobody knows who he is, but they see him in the movies because he's got an eye patch on He said the secret to military success came down to three things, and it was practice, practice, practice. And that gets to what we were talking about earlier for businesses, is you have to exercise and simulate these things. And what you're trying to exercise and simulating is the weak spots where things fall apart. You know, If everything's going well in a world that operates smoothly, you don't need to do that. And the problem is a lot of us and a lot of corporate executives have a lot of experience in that world where by and large things operate smoothly. But to begin where we started or to end where we started geopolitically and in part macroeconomically, that's not the way it's going to be for a while. And so you can continue to be caught out in the thunderstorm or you can be someone that practices for when the next thunderstorm comes this is what we're going to do. And this is how we're going to take advantage. This is how we're going to capture water. This is how we're going to secure the buildings, et cetera, et cetera. And again, it, it takes away that most critical of corporate resources, which is time, which nobody has to spare, but they have to think about it and they have to do it. Well, and I guess that final point, you, I, you first started talking about when we started these podcasts during the pandemic because, or the early stages of the pandemic, because you said companies that thought about things that could happen and how they were going to react were one step ahead. Are you seeing more companies embracing this now? Are you seeing more companies saying, I've, you know, I made it through the past three years. I'm ready to turn back to businesses as usual. Understanding the point you made at the beginning of the podcast, which is that our old idea of business as usual is not the same anymore. So, Yes. And where a lot of this is going to come up is supply chain because a lot of the conversation we're having with companies is to solve a problem that is emerging, Mm -hmm. but the iceberg is not yet next to the boat. Like it, it's there and you can see it, but companies are being proactive about, do I need to get out of the way of the iceberg or is now the time for me to turn the ship? And so Mm -hmm. I think maybe before COVID, they might not have even asked the question. And now they're asking the question before it's arrived. And I think that is a shift. And I think that's awesome. Like that, that is a, a really good behavior that the corporate world has learned that I, I think will make them more agile, more resilient in the future. 
All right. Well, definitely then end there on an optimistic note, but a lot for companies to think about. So thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. That's our show for today. Tune in next week for more fresh episodes so that you never miss any of our audio content. Follow the PwC Accounting Podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all our latest accounting and reporting news, sign up for our newsletter at viewpoint.pwc.com. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.